0: I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit my weakness. That was the hardest part. I just felt like admitting alcoholism was a defeat. And now I realize how wrong I was in that thinking. Um, You know, not only did I want to beat it and control it and not admit there was something wrong with me because that's my biggest fear that something's wrong with me. And being called an alcoholic felt like just feeding that fear. Um, It was just the opposite, you know, that's what I learned was that admitting alcoholism is like taking this small step onto a curb, you know, to get out of the street. It's like the smallest step you have to take to get in on the sidewalk, you know, but it took me so long to do it. That's the step, you know, for me, that was what was holding me back. I just couldn't admit there was something wrong with me.
1: That was Kate Lismer, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh.
2: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast, and today we have my good friend Kate Lismer joining us on the show, and Kate is an absolute miracle. Kate reached out to me when I would launched The Share Podcast, probably about a little, about a year after I launched The Share Podcast, she reached out to me, she asked for help, I replied to her email. She was caught in a nasty relapse cycle. She didn't know where to turn to next. I added her into the Facebook group. She became very active in the Share Recovery Network. And today, she has her own blog, her own podcast. She's celebrating two years clean and sober. This one really touches my heart because when I think about the impact that the Share Podcast has had on thousands of people's lives, here's one who reached out to me and two years later is sharing her journey of recovery that all started when she found the podcast. It's an absolute higher power HP baby moment. So let's dive into Kate's story, but first a quick message from our sponsor. Life can be full of uncertainty and fear. So where does that fear and uncertainty come from? What is your truth? What are your gifts and talents? What are you passionate about? What is your purpose? My name is Omar Pinto, and I am the host of the Share Podcast and the founder of ShareSpace, the empowerment network. The key to happiness is to find out what you're good at and go all in. Find the things that you are really good at and figure out how to do that for the rest of your life. If you want to find happiness, fulfillment, and purpose in your life, and you just don't know what the first step is, then do yourself a favor go to www.sharespace.net and schedule a free 15-minute consultation with me today. And for those of you that are looking for the perfect recovery gift to give to yourself or to a friend in recovery, then go to www.allrecoveryrings.com. At All Recovery Rings, you can have any recovery medallion beautifully transformed into a ring you can wear on your finger. All you need to do is select the medallion of your choice, submit your ring size, and All Recovery Rings will create the perfect ring for you. So go to www.allrecoveryrings.com and order your recovery ring today. And if you'd like to support The Share Podcast by making a donation, then go to the website www.thesharepodcast.com. Remember to spell share, S-H-A-I-R. Go to the top right corner of the website where it says donate or click on any of the yellow donate buttons throughout the website and make your donation today. And for those of you who love listening to The Share Podcast, and want to enhance your recovery, then join us in our Share Facebook private group, the Share Recovery Network. In this free Facebook private group, you will meet thousands of people in recovery that are loving, caring, and being of service. If you're struggling in your recovery or you're struggling in life, then this might be the perfect place for you. The purpose of the Share Recovery Network is to discuss recovery in all of its facets and all of its pathways in a way that is attractive and all-inclusive. So to join us in this Facebook private group, go to Facebook, go to the search bar, type in S-H-A-I-R, Recovery Network, and our private Facebook group will pop right up. So join us today. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to show your support for the podcast. And speaking of kick-ass reviews, we have Nick, G-C-U, and the title of his review is Five Stars for Helping Me Recover. And Nick writes... In my first week of sobriety, I listened to about six episodes per day, and it truly carried me through the toughest moments. Thank you so much, O. I'm bummed that I've almost run out of episodes to binge on, but will continue to listen weekly. Keep up the great work. Nick from Minnesota. I love it, man. Thank you so much for listening, Nick. Thank you so much for the love and the support. And this is why we do it, man. I mean, I'm just grateful that I've been able to consistently do the Share podcast for the last three years every single week without missing an episode. And as much as I'd like to take the credit for that, I always say the same thing, man. HP, baby. Share is divinely inspired. Thanks again, Nick. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hi, Kate. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, Ola. Thanks for having me.
2: I am super excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling?
0: I'm really good. Yeah, you caught me on a good day, so... <laughs>
2: All right. I love it. Okay, folks. So today we have Kate Lismer joining us on the share podcast. And Kate is a writer, blogger, podcaster. The name of her podcast is about face and her blog is Wayward Betty. That sounds about right, Kate? That is right. All right. Perfect. So before we dive into your story and get to know Kate a little bit better, tell us a little bit about what your normal daily routine looks like, including your own pathway of recovery.
0: Sure. Um, well, I live in Berlin, Germany. So I actually spend a lot of my time just trying to <laughs> figure things out. I've only been here um, five years, but my German is not very good. So I, um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing the expat thing. So that's kind of part of my my daily life. Um, I have a daughter who's two years old. And my husband um, also lives here. And he's from Detroit. But he's been in Germany like 20 years. So we, yeah, we're kind of doing the family thing right now. And I'm seven months pregnant. So I, I can't even give you like a normal routine because (laughs) nothing feels normal right now. Um, but I guess, um, yeah, like I wake up, I take care of my daughter. Mostly I take her to keto, which is the German kindergarten basically and then I I have my days mostly to myself right now so because in Germany the maternity period starts a lot earlier like you actually get maternity before the baby comes so it's it's really nice right now because I'm able to write and do the podcast and um yeah just I feel motivated to go swimming or work out, and I feel really fortunate right now that I have a lot of free time to do that. And as far as my recovery, um, I try to get to two or three meetings a week. And I really make time for people in my life who are in recovery because that's just really important for me to, you know, stay connected not just to the program, but also, you know, just really being in touch with people who understand that part of my life, because honestly, most people don't. I mean, my family and my friends who aren't in it and don't understand kind of that that part of me and that part of my life, like I need a lot of people around me who can support that. So I would say I see people, I don't know, I make time for friends is kind of what I'm saying. And um, I do that. Um yeah, and that's about it. Yeah, again, I'm kind of boring right now because I'm pregnant. So
2: no, 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 no. First of all, congratulations on the <laughs> the upcoming baby. Um, I love here's something I like. I like to take takeaways from things that I feel are important and something to kind of to to be mindful of, which is um, philosophies right? Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that, that Germany has the philosophy that maternity leave comes before and after the pregnancy, which also it allows you to be loving, nurturing, and kind to yourself. It allows you to really care for your child as you're going through this moment. There's so many things that happen within the womb, right? Early childhood development, is starts in the womb. And if you're stressed out, if you're in a, in a bad marriage, if you're, if you're angry, all that energy gets, gets transmitted into the child. So to have that kind of a philosophy, I just, I, I can't say enough about how I, I applaud that. And I, and I, and I feel like as we, as we move on in the course of our lives, I think it's, it's important as a global society to recognize what's working in other societies. Right. And not to push the envelope, not to constantly be encouraging hyper and super hyper uh success and, and, and uh you know a constant need to uh to compete, right? And and more of like it's both, right? Like we should be able to do that, but we should also be able to completely take the hammer off the wheel. And just slow way down and be mindful of what we're doing. Um, I'm also curious how you and your husband met. Like this is this whole thing is like crazy. How would you guys meet?
0: Well, it's it is part of the story. But I, I when I was traveling, um, I was sort of homeless and on the road for like two years. And um, at the time, someone was like, "Oh, you should go to Berlin. You'd really love it." And I mean, at the time time I was still using and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go to this party city, you know, go clubbing. And I just didn't think it was going to be what it is. I mean, it was supposed to be very short, like three weeks and then back to San Francisco. And, um, at the time I was, um, I was like 31 or something and I was online dating. And so I had used OkCupid back in the U S and I was in Germany and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so sick of not speaking English. And I just, you know, I just, it wasn't dating seriously. I just wanted to meet people who spoke English. And so, yeah, we met on OKCupid, which is kind of embarrassing. But it's also like, it's not the most romantic story, but it is how we met. So it works.
2: Oh man. I, I absolutely love it. Again. Another thing to keep in mind of is that we're not talking about Tinder. Okay, we're talking about um like eHarmony. I hear nothing but amazing things about eHarmony. This is the first time I'm hearing of OkCupid. Cupid. But the whole idea is that we've gotten, you know, the 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 world has gotten so small. We can communicate anywhere we're at in the world. And if you're lost somewhere, you can easily connect. You can get on, for example, the Share podcast recovery, uh, Facebook, the, the share recovery network, which is a private Facebook group. So if you're looking for recovering addicts all over the world, you can find them in there. If I'm looking to meet with new people of the opposite sex, you know, and there's some different dating sites that are known, you know, for actually connecting people that are serious about being in a relationship, then, then you're, you're saving a lot of time and bullshit, you know right. i mean think about you know like oh my god where am i going to meet people and i don't go out to bars i don't go out to clubs if i go to a starbucks it, you know is somebody actually going to come and approach me are they going to assume that i'm available right but if i'm actually in a place specifically for then I don't, I don't i see absolutely nothing wrong with it you know and and just like anything else i would want to destigmatize online dating in in <laughs> in the sense that i've met I know um, my cousins, my cousins met in online dating. One of my closest friends met someone online dating. And now I know you who who met your husband online. And they're all married. You guys are all married.
0: It happens. Yeah. There's a lot of horror stories behind that. I mean, I can <laughs> tell you like the bad dates, the many <laughs> bad dates. But yeah, I mean, it, you sometimes get lucky. I mean, I have theories about why it works sometimes, but you don't want to be like, online dating for 10 years I think <laughs> you know, you have to do like the short windows of online dating you can catch someone
2: I right, there's a, there is a strategy there is a strategy to the online dating I love it all right so cool so um so let's start diving into your story a little bit more first of all tell us how much clean time you have and when is your anniversary date
0: so my anniversary date is coming up on February 18th and I will have two years of sobriety
2: Sweet. All right. So this is perfect timing. I love it. We're just, we're five days away from your two year anniversary. Beautiful. All right. And tell us how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs. And more importantly, how did they make you feel?
0: Yeah. I was uh, probably uh, 14 years old. And. In my head, there were two times that I got really drunk, but I remember. I mean, they were, they were both around the same time, and it was. Uh, one was like a, a graduation party for a friend's older brother, and I was I was a freshman in high school, and you know, we're stealing all the wine coolers, and I was. I mean, I was throwing up <laughs> within like a couple hours, but it was one of those things where I just I was dancing and I felt so free and. In this really weird way, I felt like myself and I just, I loved it. And even though I was so sick, you know, I woke up thinking, when can I do that again? You know, <laughs> when's, when's that going to happen again? I liked it.
2: I love <laughs> it. I love it. All right. So, Kate, you are officially all warmed up. It's time for me to turn the show over to you. It's time for you to share your story. Uh, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom and then finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So Kate, please take it away.
0: Sure. Um, so I guess that's when it started. I mean, I even at that young age, I think there was already an obsession. And that's something I didn't realize until I got into recovery that that was a thing. I, I thought everyone was obsessed with alcohol. I mean, I really thought... On Monday morning, everyone's thinking, you know, when are, how are we going to get booze for Friday and where are we going to drink? And, and that basically defined my high school years was um, pretty much trying to figure out. Yeah, I, I went to high school in uh, Milwaukee, outside of Milwaukee. And, you know, the Midwest has such a big drinking culture. And so in some ways, it was accepted. I mean, I remember people building beer bongs, you know, when we were 15 years old and, I even, I think I was like 16 when I went into the hardware store and I was like, can I get a funnel and some tubing? And it's it's really cool that I knew how to build a beer bong. And um, I was, I mean, we were really young, but we were binge drinking hard. And this started, you know, before I was even driving. And so, um, you know, I would say there was kind of markers of trouble but there was also a lot of drinking around me so it didn't always feel like I was the only one um on my 16th birthday I was at um someone's house and someone was like you know they gave me a bottle of southern comfort and they were like you can have as much as you want but we have to put the booze away around 10 p.m. because the parents were coming home it was one of those things and I used to be a gymnast. And I remember that day I didn't have a... um, I had a gymnastics meet and I hadn't been eating. And I was just like, okay, give me the bottle. How much can I drink? And I think I had 20 minutes. I remember thinking like, I have to drink as much as I can to get drunk for the night because it's my birthday. And um, I don't remember anything after 15 minutes because I... (laughs) I blacked out and they actually had to call an ambulance. Or I'm sorry, they were going to call an ambulance, but they had to call my parents to take me to the hospital um, because by the time actually my parents reached me, I didn't have even a heartbeat. And the my pulse was so low that they, you know, they were like they knew that uh, I was so sick they had to take me in. And the doctors even told my parents that I probably would have died if they hadn't taken me in because I had such an extreme case of alcohol poisoning. Wow. Uh, and at that, that was kind of the moment where, even for me, I knew things weren't really normal. You know, I knew then, okay, like this isn't normal drinking. I woke up in the hospital not, re- not remembering anything, actually. And, um, You know, it was my parents, I think, didn't know what to do. The doctors actually told them I was an alcoholic when I was 16 because they couldn't believe someone my age and my, you know, just being like a young girl, they couldn't believe I drank as much as I did and wasn't, you know, throwing up sooner. Like they thought there must have been a pattern of this. So I was not 16 and I, I really tried to manage my drinking then. I mean, when I look back it's interesting that I was 16 years old trying to manage my consumption because on the other hand, I was I was very ambitious. I kind of was type A. I mean, I was really I really wanted to go to college. I was getting into trouble, but I was also really driven. And so, you know, this sort of marked my path of having split personalities, like split lives and also that constant need to kind of prove yourself, you know, it was like, I was constantly trying to do more and do more, but also needing a release after. And so alcohol really fed that for me where it was like, I would put a lot of pressure on myself and then need alcohol to relieve that pressure. And so I never, um, during that time, I wasn't trying to quit drinking, I, but I was definitely trying to control it, um, And at the same time, things were just I was drinking like a like a teenager, too. I was still going to parties. Um, And I would say that kind of I did actually get alcohol poisoning one more time before I moved out. Um, I think I was 17. And I was also getting in trouble with the law a lot. Like I was um, I would get caught for underage drinking. And it wasn't like one time. I think I had probably by the time I left home five or six underage drinking tickets and <laughs> <laughs> I had the worst luck. I mean that was the other thing. <laughs>
2: luck. <laughs> I like that luck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bad luck. Um and then what else? I mean my parents caught me drunk driving once and I remember that was like you know crossing the line because it, it I think you know there were so many moments where it's like okay this is problematic, but because I had I have a lot of alcoholism in my family, and I think maybe my parents didn't want to label me. I think that was part of not wanting to intervene. I mean, I had court-ordered therapy during this these years, but I, I never heard from my parents, you know, you're an alcoholic, you need help. I never got that. And I think looking back, it was intentional. I think maybe they worried that would mark me somehow, and I wouldn't be able to recover. But I mean it's a longer story there but anyway so when I got to college I kind of just didn't have a safety net anymore. I didn't have the same group of friends who were protecting me in certain ways and I still drank the same. So I was just I mean, it was just chaos. I went I lived in Tucson. I went to college down there and so we would go down to Mexico and this was when I was 18 and just like you know, we were, what is that? Oh, uh, Nogales. We'd go down to Nogales and I'd get drunk and, you know, black out on tequila and not remember what happened. And this one time we went down there and I mean, there were some fun times like dancing and I was always into like getting on bars. And I mean, I loved being drunk. So for me, Mexico is a free for all. And um, this one time though, I came out of the bar and, well, the weekend before, a friend of mine had gotten um, arrested by the, the uh, federalities down there and he got uh, beat up and he came back to Tucson. He didn't have any front teeth because he had gotten arrested down there. And then the next weekend, I was down there and I was in this market. They, you know, they have these um, markets and I broke a pot um, and I didn't have any money to pay for it. And so the Mexican police came and they actually, um, they were kind of harassing me to give them my, the pesos. I didn't have the money. They ended up picking me up, carrying me across the border and like leaving me at Burger King because I mean, it was actually lucky. They didn't take me into jail, but yeah. like, then I'm stranded. Yeah. <laughs> I was like uh, stranded at the Mexican border with, you know, no money. And I think I hitchhiked back to Tucson But there were just so many stories like this where it was like lucky to be alive, but I made it through and somehow it was just like another story that another thing that just kind of happened at the same time I was getting straight A's. And so I think this happens to a lot of people where it's really easy to cover up the problems when you can demonstrate All some other markers of success, especially in traditional ways, whether that's getting good grades in school or having a good job, you know, when you can kind of mask the, you know, the problem with some kind of success, it it makes it harder for other people to see and it makes it harder to admit because you can still go, well, Yeah, I might, you know, have these like messy moments, but I'm getting straight A's. And at the time I was going to go to, I was going to law school. And so it was kind of like, I was always doing stuff that kind of protected me from really having to admit there was anything else going on. Um, And also in college, I would say there were a lot of, um, I don't know how else to describe it. I would say traumatic sexual encounters where you know, cause I've thought about it a lot, especially, I know you have a daughter and I have a daughter and it's like, to think of her in these situations is just so painful because I, what I really want to say is like, how do you, how do you get yourself in these situations? You know, how is this happening? And for me, I was always very liberal and I wanted to feel like I was sexually liberated, you know? And so drinking was kind of like a foray into doing whatever I wanted But what I know now is like, you know, drunk sex is not liberated sex and drunk sex is not consensual sex. And so I think, um, you know, there's certain books that I've read since I got sober that like really are good at kind of articulating this, this problem for, and I, I'm going to say women, I'm sure men go through this too, but I think women have a particular problem with sexuality and alcohol and, And for me, it took a lot of years to kind of sort through like, okay, what was stuff I really wanted to do and what was consensual and what was just being drunk and not aware of what was happening to me. Um, And I only bring that up because I, I do feel like it compounded through my 20s in a way that I wasn't dealing with painful episodes because I wanted to identify them as choices. I wanted to say I wanted to do that or I, that was fine for me and it wasn't. And I would wake up and I'd feel awful and then probably not consciously, you know, I would also drink to cover up those feelings too. Um, So a lot of this came out for me in recovery to really have to face things that happened to me when I was drinking because I didn't want to think about it when I was, you know, during those years. Um, when I, I did end up scoring really high on the LSAT and I got a scholarship to law school when I was 21 and I think the pressure of like actually doing something like that. And it's almost like validation in my life has also created additional pressure for me where it's like, it's kind of the imposter syndrome where you go, oh, like, oh, people are kind of buying this you know, that people are kind of eating up when I'm selling, but at the same time, I know it's not true. And so when I would get into situations that presented an opportunity or a success, like I often sabotaged it because of my own fears. And so my first year of law school, I mean, I was totally out of control. I mean, it was like double the, It was like doubling the amount of drinking I did in in college, which is kind of remarkable. But I was like, I really needed it. I mean, I really felt like that first year of law school, um, it was emotional. I mean, there's a lot of reasons it was hard for me, but I just found myself drinking more and more. I hadn't been sleeping. um, I think that's when I had started like having panic attacks. And so my drinking kind of became just something I really needed during the week and the weekend to kind of get through. I mean, and, and, By the end of my first year, um, a few things happened that I just, I knew I needed help and I knew I needed to get sober. That was like a really clear idea for me. It was like, okay, the alcohol has got to go. Like, It is becoming so painful for me. And I knew it was not, if I kept drinking, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do all these things that I had wanted to do with my life. And so I quit and I made this like, decision that I was going to quit drinking for a year. But the thing was, I, I picked one year because I decided if I can quit for a year, then I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I really, that was like, and the thing was at that point I had no, I had a friend in AA and she had often tried to get me to go, but I was like, not, there. I mean, I just, I didn't want to call myself an alcoholic and I really felt like I really felt like I could control it. I mean, that was my my goal. I mean, and I, you know, I'm coming from that personality of like total ego, total self-will. I thought, of course, I can fight this. I mean, I, I felt like I'd done so many other things. Like, how could I not beat this stupid little thing? You know, it's just alcohol. And I really thought that, you know, it's just that I'd quit. And actually, the first, what, two months, three months, it was like... The pink cloud. I mean, I loved being sober. I was super creative during that time. I started playing guitar. I was writing a lot. I felt really inspired. I was like, I'm dropping out of law school. I'm going to go to film school. And, you know, I had all these ideas. And I would say, so I quit in August. And by April, I was in so much pain. I mean, I was just. I had nobody. I mean, I did, I was not in recovery. I was doing it on my own, and it just was so hard for me to be sober. And I didn't actually at the time relate it to my sobriety. I thought it was just. I thought I was depressed. I thought I had all these. You know, I just didn't feel good. I knew that wasn't how I wanted to feel. And at some point, I started planning my relapse. I mean, it was kind of like had because of that rule I had, I knew I had to make it till August so that I could say I wasn't an alcoholic, <laughs> but <laughs> I was obsessed with that day that I could start drinking again. And so I did. I mean, I August came and I remember exactly the day I went out and I started drinking. And in my head, I thought, thank God, I can feel better again. I, was, I really was sick of being sober. I hated it because... I started feeling really isolated. I felt like no one understood me. I was angry. I thought, why me? Why am I the one who has to get sober? Like, everyone's getting drunk. And I would sit there at family events or other, you know, going to bars with people and just be so resentful. And I hated everything. I mean, I just, you know, the, the inspiration I had at the beginning, like I would say in the first six months like was gone. I didn't have, because I didn't have anything kind of fundamental, you know, which I do think now is, you know, a deeper spirituality. I mean, that's kind of part of my story too. I was pretty resistant to um, anything, religion, anything with God. I mean, I was hyper intellectual. Um, So it was really important for me to justify that, that like religion was not for smart people. You know, religion was for people who couldn't handle life. And, you know, I had a lot of judgments about not just spirituality, but religion. It was really, um, uh, I don't want to say offensive, but it was just definitely something I really avoided. Um, And I felt really strongly about that. And um, so... I, after I started drinking again, I think, you know, there was definitely a period of like, okay, we're going to manage it this time. You know, when you talk to yourself, we're going (laughs) to do it. (laughs) I felt like, okay, I can, you know, I mean, I tried everything. I mean, I was the, I'm only going to have three drinks. I'm going to mix, you know, I'm going to have a drink and then I'm going to have a water. I'm only going to drink on the weekends. Um, You know, it was like, you can name it. I tried it. And eventually, I don't think it took long. I mean, I think it took I, literally weeks before I was worse than I was when I quit. I mean, and it just, and then I also was the type who kind of blamed everything else. So at the time, then when I graduated law school, it's like, well, it's, it's not me, right? It's the city I'm in. So I moved to New York, which is like, I love New York, but it was the worst place for me to go as like, <laughs> you know, someone who needed a more of an, a sense of, of escape. You know, New York actually just made me a lot more paranoid. The funny thing was I had this big law firm job. Um, I had an office at 30 Rock and I was 30 Rock? You in mean some the- ways kind of living the dream.
2: 30 Rock, is that the, is that the miniseries?
0: Well, it's a mini series, but it's 30 Rockefeller Center. That show was filmed. Yeah, like it's filmed in the same building.
2: Okay, and okay, okay. So you were in 30 Rock, the building. Yeah, this-
0: yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're looking out, you know, looking over the Manhattan skyline. I had, I was 26 years old. I had, you know, six figure salary. And in some ways, it was like, okay, I made it, you know, like. I might be a mess, but like something kind of has been working for me, you know, like I still could kind of, you know, I'm buying the Ann Taylor suits and like going to work and feeling like, okay, I, you know, no one knows my, no one knows me. Right. Like they just see girl in suit and, you know, I was really trying to play the part and, you know, still looking back, I don't, I don't know if it was like, it just wasn't me and the whole thing was a show anyway. Or maybe I really did want to be a lawyer and I didn't think I was good enough. I mean, I still don't know the answer to that question because so much of my um, sense of self and decision-making after the fact was clouded. I mean, it was really, I didn't have a clear sense of myself. So I don't know, maybe I would have been a good lawyer. But at the time, I just, I couldn't deal with it. I mean, it was again, the pressure of trying to perform and still feeling this pull towards wanting to have a different life, wanting to be someone else, wanting to be somewhere else. You know, mine was always the people, places, things. Like I really felt, I always was looking for that thing that would fix me. And so whether it was cities or jobs or men, you know, there was always something I didn't have. That's what I was always looking for that thing that would make me, Not feel the way I felt, and so within a few months of being in New York, I decided it was the job. (laughs) It's the job making me miserable, and so I quit and I started uh, freelance writing, which I loved. I mean, it was a really um, interesting job to have. It gave me, you know, a lifestyle that I enjoyed, but it was. Also, a terrible combination when you're an addict and you're using and you're a freelancer. Ooh. It's just a bad situation. Yeah. You have no one to wake up to. You know, I mean, I had tax problems, which I'll get into later, but it was just, it kind of set me up for what was going to happen next, which was like anyone who's relapsed knows how hard it is to come back. I mean, we're talking now. What six, seven years have gone by, and I'm now I'm still using like at least in the same way that I was. And during those years, I couldn't think about quitting again because I remembered how hard it. I remembered how hard it was to quit. I remembered what it felt like, and my mind would just not go there. And I would have every reason not to try that again. So again, kind of in management mode, and um, so around this time, I actually. This is kind of funny, but I didn't try cocaine until I was 28. And this was after, you know, I was a lawyer and everything in New York. And it was just like, my first thought was, why have I never done this before? Like, Uh (laughs) I thought it was Mm. the best thing in the world. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't like I was 19 years old. I was 28 and, um, I thought it was amazing, you know, and I never, you know, the thing was, I always thought alcohol was sort of the, well, I never thought it was a drug. I just thought it was, you know, it's kind of that I separated, you know, I thought drugs are for like losers and people who don't care. And alcohol was always, I mean, it's so much worse looking back. I mean, cocaine never brought me anywhere near the amount of pain that alcohol brought me, but I just couldn't see, I just thought, okay, alcohol is like, for everyone and cocaine is for like bad people. And um, not that I had a problem, like, you know, stepping into that, but I also, I know in my mind there was just, that was kind of a boundary for me where I'm like, I didn't want to be buying illegal drugs. Like I remember kind of just letting people give them to me and like doing what I needed to do to like make sure I had people around me who had drugs. Um, and this wasn't a long period of time, but I would say um, it happened really quickly where I I needed more than alcohol. And so I also started like I started um, hoarding my pills like um, I would get UTIs and I'd go to the hospital. And back then, this was like 2008, 2009, they would give you a whole bottle of like Percocet for the pain, like a UTI, you know, and, um, I would be like, oh yes, this is going to get me through like so many hangovers. Cause I was using the Percocet to also kind of balance how, you know, a cocaine hangover or something like that. And, um, one night I was walking home. It was really, it was like four in the morning and this guy was ran into me on the street and he said, you know, I'll give you as much cocaine as you want if you come home with me. and I don't know what I was thinking but I just I didn't want to go home. I think I didn't want to go home and I didn't want to wake up because I was I just had that feeling of wanting you know to escape and I went to his um flat which was in on Avenue D. I remember we had to like go p- past the projects and he brings me upstairs and he gave me tons of cocaine, but I, and I honestly, I don't remember how this happened, but he started beating me. He started um, hitting me. I re- he was pulling me like, be- pulling me by my hair and punching me in the stomach. And I remember at some point I was crying and he said, I'm sorry, baby. I thought you liked it. And um, I just was like, I have to get out of here. Like I didn't know. I mean, I was hysterical and crying. And the weirdest thing was he offered to walk me home. And like what? in my Yes. In all of this crazy, I thought, well, maybe I should let him walk me home. It's like, you know, in the middle of the night, I'm like right by the projects. I didn't, you know, I had to get home. So this is crazy. But the guy, he, we leave his apartment and this kid was walking across the street and he had one of those, wallet. So it's kind of like dangling off the chain or something, this, this guy did. And the kid runs by and like grabs his wallet. He rips the wallet off, off of his chain and starts running. And so this guy this like predator starts chasing him the other direction. And it was such a like moment where I'm like, what am I doing? Like I have to run too. you know, I have to get away. I don't, you know, it was crazy. So then I, you know, he's running one way and I'm running the other. Um, And anyway, so I got home, I like collapsed in my studio and I just was hysterical. I mean, it was, you know, this was a rock bottom of like, how did you get into, like, how did you get into this at all? And how, I mean, it was a moment where I thought, how am I going to get out? You know, I had, I remember just pulling clumps of hair uh, out and like filling this bag because he had pulled me around by my hair. So, Question. anyway, yes.
2: Did you take any of the cocaine home?
0: <laughs> no, I, I should have. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> you know what He gave me, you're going to laugh. He gave me his screenplay. He was like, read this. Let me know what you think. And I took it, you know, because he was writing us. That's how crazy it was. He, I took the screenplay home.
2: <laughs> Good Lord. Here I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I wonder if she actually got away with some of that blow for everything that she just went through.
0: (laughs) I did did so much at his place. I don't think I even needed it. I was so sick. I mean, that was the thing. I had like the worst cocaine hangover I've ever had. And mine were really bad. Like I would get very quickly suicidal. And I don't know. My husband and I have talked about it a lot because I'm like, I don't know if everyone gets that way with cocaine. I just it's probably a good thing. It's why I never got addicted to it because I could never handle the mornings. I just couldn't do it. And so that's what happened on this day. Um, You know, meanwhile, I forgot this happened, but I had gotten a huge grant to study um, literature. I was getting a PhD at NYU and this happened like during my program. I just started it. And so like, like, it was, I think it was, again, this combination of like, high pressure, academic environment, and then me leading this sort of secret life that was really causing me a lot of pain. And so it's really weird. But I got um, in touch with my ex boyfriend from high school. And we were he was kind of counseling me that morning, I remember he was telling me um, to, you know, drink water and and whatever. And this is so crazy, but we ended up getting engaged over Skype like that month because it's <laughs> <I was>, like <laughs> I we would sing, like Skype and then fall asleep. I mean, it's kind of sweet actually, but we would like Skype and fall asleep next to each other. I mean, and at some point, because this is the state of my nose, and I was like, Oh my God, like we were meant to be together this whole time. And I don't know if I convinced him or he convinced. I honestly, I don't remember how it happened, but we ended up getting engaged. He drove from my, now this is my high school boyfriend who I went to prom with, who I have not seen, or, you know, we never dated after that. He drove out to meet me, got a U-Haul, we packed up everything and drove back to Milwaukee. I dropped out of school, I like lost my apartment. I mean it was just I left everything and decided I was going to get married and live in Milwaukee. And I think at the time it seemed the really sane thing to do, right? It was like my life is total chaos. I have no control over what I'm doing. I needed some kind of comfort and he did bring me that. Um but absolutely no forethought. I mean there was no like <laughs> what is marriage like do i know you i mean i remember we i moved into his uh studio and one day i opened up i mean you have to imagine this is like i moved from manhattan to this small town outside of milwaukee and i open up his closet in the studio and it's full of fi- uh fishing gear <laughs> and I'm like, the reality check totally like waiters a tackle box like all these fishing poles and i'm like you fish like what? Like, I really, I'm like, I don't know this guy at all. Like, and I, I'm not saying we didn't have a connection. Obviously I did. We would, I would have never gone back there if we didn't, but it was just really this chaotic whirlwind sort of romance. And, um, so we're in like the thick of wedding planning, you know, invitations are out 250 people, the wedding ring, the dress. And, um, again, that feeling came back for me where I was like, oh my God, like I, something is wrong, you know, just the same thing. P.S. Um, he also was a drug addict and we both were living as active alcoholics, I would say during this time. And, you know, it was kind of like, I wasn't paying attention to that. You know, I was very much thinking again, like, what's wrong with my life? Like, what's wrong? What can I fix? Not the drugs and alcohol, but what Like, what situation needs to go? Um, And I remember one day I asked him, I'm like, let's just get up and go. Like, let's just get out of here. We'll take the, we had money that my dad jokingly called a dowry. He gave me a bunch of cash. It was supposed to pay for the wedding, pay for whatever. And I got this chunk in my bank account. And I'm like, I'm not spending this on a wedding. Like, why? You know, I just thought, what can we do with this money? And so I was trying to convince my fiance to, like, run away with me. And he's like, what are you, 15, you know? And I'm like, well, we kind of are. You know, it's kind of like we're kind of teenagers again. I remember trying to convince him to come with me. And he was, um, I don't know if he knew I was insane, which at the time... (laughs) Or if he, I don't know. I don't know. We never talked about it, but I I, I was trying to get him to, to leave the country with me and he wouldn't go. And so one night I, you know, I called off the whole wedding and told him I was leaving and called off the, I mean, My friends still call me the runaway bride because it was that it was like so dramatic, like two weeks before the wedding. And then I'm living in my car because I just took, I just said goodbye. I packed up my car and I just had all these plans of places I wanted to go. So, like, I was going to. Go live in the smoky mountains and go, you know, I did this these things that were like so romantic in my head. But I mean, I really was drinking the whole time. I went to the Smoky Mountains, I went out to Florida, I drove to California, and then that's when I started traveling around the world. And it was funny because this is the same summer that Eat Pray Love came out, like the movie. I mean, I had read the book. And I was really intrigued, but I was totally living this movie fantasy in my head of like, well, I just need to like get away and heal. And I was one of those people that was really sucked into travel culture. I mean, really the romance of like, just leaving and finding yourself. And so I kind kind of did that. I mean, I went to um, Australia and Bali and then Thailand, Vietnam. Turkey. I mean, the thing was, like, I was functional, you know, I was getting around, it wasn't I was never the kind of drunk that couldn't get on an airplane, like I could, def- I could like out on the airplane, but I could get where I was going, and meet who I needed to meet to survive. I mean, I was just, and I wasn't even planning things. I was just kind of picking places on the map where I would show up, you know, get into some trouble. And when it got bad enough, I would leave. Um, you know, and I feel like this is one of those things where you ever have like two versions of the same story where like, I could tell you it was this beautiful, romantic time in my life and I was really free and I traveled around the world and, you know, it's the best thing I ever did. There is that story, but there's also the story of like, it was a disaster. I would say, I, I mean, I had my, <clears throat> I got really drunk one night in Thailand and had my wallet and my passport stolen, and you know, I woke up with no money. And I remember having to convince the hotel to feed me and to let me stay there until the money came. I mean, these people were so kind, and that happened to me a lot. Where like I would just meet people who were willing to help me out, um, even though you know, by any measure, I mean, I was, I was not really. Uh, just, I wasn't taking care of myself at all. You know, there was money problems, I would say emotional stuff. And, um, it was also a scary time. You know, I kind of, I would show up in places and not know, um, just not know what I was getting into. Like this one night I was, I was riding this train in Vietnam and there were all these guys drinking snake whiskey in this cab. It's like this cabin. And, I'm kind of that person who's like, you know, where's the party? Like, I didn't like, why am I in this room down here with like no one drinking? And they let me come in and I got super drunk. And again, I I blacked out and I woke up there and everyone was gone. And the conductor from the train is like shaking me, yelling me. It's like the last stop. And I'm like, they stole my shit. I remember yelling at that the, this conductor who probably didn't even speak English, telling him that someone had stolen my bags and these assholes, they have my laptop. And um, this, by the way, was after my stuff actually had been stolen, but I just like lost it. And the guy, he t- takes me by the hand and he brings me back to the cab where my stuff was. I just had left it. You know, it was like my laptop was under the pillow. Like no one took anything. Oh, it was just, I was
2: just so embarrassing.
0: Totally. And they're probably like, Oh my God, who is this American? Like, what is she here?
2: Giving us a bad name, Kate.
0: No, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I am. So anyway, then, yeah, I mean, whatever. It kind of just continued that way. When I got to Spain, I started having um, really bad panic attacks, and I, I guess at some point I just knew I had to go home um, and that, like, back to the U.S. and I was going to try to like start my life over. And when I um, when I, I went back to San Francisco, and I did, I tried to get my life back together, and um, I had I don't know how much time I have. I feel like I'm rambling, but um, plenty of time. Girl. I okay. I, uh, I got back to San Francisco and I was still drinking and I had these, like, my big plan was actually to become a burlesque dancer. And again, it was one of these things. It's like, oh, this will make me, you know, this will make me happy and fulfilled. And I was like, I know this is what I was thinking though. And I wow. got there.
2: <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Jesus. I love it.
0: I was actually, I was taking like burlesque classes, ready to do these shows. And at the time I, I was, uh, I had been in a couple uh, car accidents and they were like fender benders. Like, I'm not trying to say they weren't a big deal because they were, I, they, like two of them I was drinking, but there, there wasn't a lot of damage. They're probably more like hit and runs. And I felt so bad about it, but I but I was like, "What am I going to do? Like, turn myself in?"
2: Yeah, fuck that. You know,
0: and I oh, something else happened. I don't know. It was just like leading up to this one night. Um, I have an uncle who lives down in San Diego, and I went down to visit. I hadn't. I don't want to say he's estranged. He's like part of the family, but I hadn't seen him in a while. And when I got down there, um, it was just him, like no one else was there. And so we're drinking wine and I remember crying to him, telling him what had happened to me and that I was so upset, you know, about these car accidents. And I mean, honestly, I really didn't know him that well. So it wasn't like, I thought he could have helped me, but I remember being really vulnerable and he kissed me and I absolutely flipped out. I mean, it was like, because I was also drunk. I remember I looked at him. It was total shock that he had done that. And oh God, it was just, I mean, it was such a feeling of like loss and violation. And I just, I couldn't believe that I was in this situation. And so I, I said to him, I'll never tell anyone, but I never want to see you again. And I was grabbing my stuff and I'm like throwing it in the trunk of my car. I was really drunk and he's yelling at me, you know, you're going to go to jail and, you know, kind of just, you know, screaming at me, but I was in such a panic. I'm crying and getting in my car and um, total mess. And I remember I had a friend in in San Diego and I told them what happened. He called his friend who was a, a fireman and somehow they found me on this like back street in San Diego. And the fireman, I mean, what a I mean, I still feel like he saved my life that night because he let me, he found me first of all, and then he let me stay at his house. And was like such a gentleman, like made me a bed on the couch. I remember his dog coming in and waking me up in the morning and he had made me breakfast before his shift. And I ended up getting I had to get a hotel. And the reason this story is like It's a hard story for me to tell, but when I woke up, so that was Christmas Eve and I woke up on Christmas day and I was like, I have to get sober again. I mean, I knew that wasn't my fault that that had happened, but I knew it wouldn't have happened if I was drunk or if I wasn't drunk. And if I wasn't drinking the way I was drinking, I felt like I could have seen it coming or maybe I just would have been in a better position to protect myself from that. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's... I actually have never told that story before because it's like, it's so heartbreaking for me and for my family, for the people who know, you know, it, it just was awful. And so it was also the day though that I thought, like, I have to get sober again, you know? So I was, you know, this happened a little later and I wanted to tell about my relapses because I feel like people... You know, I think the thinking that I had at the time is pretty similar to people who are going through that where you just you hit these rock bottoms, you know shit is gone south, and you know you don't want to go through that again. And you wake up and this is it was Christmas Day. I had one last cocktail at the bar, and then I was gonna quit again. You know, and unfortunately, like the exact same thing happened. I did not have a program by April. I was I had a few months of re- that were really good. I had at least three or four months that felt like, okay, I'm making progress. I'm sober again. You know, again, really productive. Really, I felt um, when I was not drinking, um, I did feel I did feel better. I mean, it, it wasn't just physical. It was like everything felt better until it didn't. You know, because it wasn't enough. Like not drinking was never enough to keep me sober. If that makes sense, it was like I. By April that year, I was sobbing all the time. I couldn't figure out why I was crying, you know. And um, I, for the second time in 10 years, planned a relapse. It was like, I'm going to... I mean, it was like messed up to it that I was like, I'm going to have a party and like invite... I was going to (laughs) like invite people to witness my relapse. Like I wanted it to be an event because it felt that big for me that was like, everyone knew I was trying to get sober, but I was like, but let's celebrate me falling off the wagon, you know? And I remember there were a lot of people were like, that's really not funny. And why are you doing this? But I had to make light of it because I knew how painful it was to go through it. But I also really wanted to, I mean, I I really wanted to relapse because I was sick of it. You know, again, I did not have a program. I didn't have any people. I wasn't, I didn't have any structure for what I was doing. So relapsed again, went back to living in my car and that summer I was in Sedona and I went to a psychic and she said to me, you know, you're going to have a big decision coming up. You're going to have a crossroads. And she, you know, it was just, it wasn't romantic. It was just a life choice. And the next week I, someone invited me to come to Berlin and take this apartment. And again, I was like, I don't, I didn't have anything going on. So I came to Berlin, I um, was still partying a lot. And that's when I met my husband. And so we also started our relationship in a pretty heavy drinking uh, way. I mean, I was just coming off the tails of a relapse. So for me, that meant actually drinking more than I normally would have. And we... I mean, we did. We just partied a lot. We, and then we got engaged really quickly. So we met online we were in, um, engaged within, I think, six or eight months, got married. Um, and all during this time, like, I would say my drinking was very much like, I, it was kind of in waves where I would have really bad periods where I would become depressed and even suicidal and not know. Like, I never equated it with drinking, but then I would have that period of like, okay, I need to get better. And then I would try management things. So, in these years, I had tried um, psychotherapy, Greenberg, uh, yoga, life coaches. Um, and in some ways, because I had tried getting sober so many times, like, I kind of, I'd read a lot, you know, it was like, I was very familiar. I mean, I had read, excuse me, I'd read the big book already a couple of times. Like I knew what these things were, but I wasn't, the big hurdle for me was that I did not want to be an alcoholic. And I was still fighting that label because it was like going to AA for me meant defeat. That meant I failed. That meant I wasn't, I couldn't do it myself. Um, I mean I just could I mean even in my darkest darkest hours I could not bring myself to call myself an alcoholic. Now when I so when I got pregnant with my daughter I wasn't drinking obviously but I was definitely having the dry dry spell which is like even worse for a pregnant woman. I mean it's just you're already kind of crazy and then you're also a dry drunk and I was you know when i after i had her i was very quickly thinking okay when when do i get to start drinking again you know and again i told myself well i'm not an alcoholic because i didn't drink for 9 months so that's not really going to be a problem for me and i also thought having a child would kind of cut me off from all these problems that i had with alcohol i really believed that having a kid would Relieve me of that, you know, that I wouldn't have to think about it, that she would mean more to me than my alcoholism, that I could just kind of use her actually to get better. And um, I really thought that would happen. And what terrified me was like this reality that your baby, like your newborn baby, no matter how much you love it, is not that love is not stronger than addiction that you are still going to do what you're going to do to get high. And I, you know, so she was born in October and I would say I was drinking, you know, my husband and I had this deal where like we would each take a night to go out with our friends. And of course I'd always overdo it. And then, you know, have regrets in the morning. And um, I started, he would be working and I started kind of thinking, you know, well, I'm home alone. Like, who cares if I have some drinks at starting at three or four o'clock. And I, you know, again, like during this time, I was never the kind of person who woke up and started drinking right away. That wasn't my style. I would drink, I would, when I was able to drink, I would get really drunk. And then I had a lot of emotional bottoms. So for me, you know, alcohol really affected my moods. And when I was in, I had a postpartum depression. And during that time, it was like, I could just tell that the alcohol was making everything worse. And the other thing I saw for myself was like, alcohol was a perfect relief from parenthood. Like when, especially when you're a new mom and you feel stuck and you feel like your body's being taken over and you have no time left and you have no volition. Like alcohol was this perfect antidote to getting away from that feeling like any stresses of motherhood or this pressure to do things a certain way. Like, I mean, alcohol was the answer and I would have never thought that. I mean, I just, I think I, what I thought was you, why would you ever become a drunk mother? How could you become a drunk mom? I never thought that would be me. And um, this one night I remember I was on the phone and I was drinking boxed wine and I just kept refilling my cup and refilling my cup and, You know, I was breastfeeding at the time, but I was, you know, I was careful about not feeding her when I was drinking. But, but even when I had bottles for her, like, um, you know, you're still getting up with a newborn in the middle of the night, you know, it's kind of hard to do when you can't walk. So that night, um, I blacked out and I don't remember, I don't remember taking care of her. But when I woke up in the morning, she was in my bed and I... I, I mean, it was this sheer panic yes, of like,
2: absolutely.
0: What could have happened? I mean, I, it makes me want to throw up even saying it because I just felt like, who does that? How could I do that? And um, it was that morning that I knew I had to do something. And actually, it's so interesting because during this whole time, I've always been really into podcasts. And even weeks before this happened, I was listening to your podcast and the way I found it was I wasn't trying to get sober. I was actually just looking for good stories and it popped into my head. I'm like, I bet you you alcoholics have really good stories. I I just wanted to hear people's lives. And so I typed in you know, alcoholic, I think I typed in alcoholic stories. I didn't know the AA stuff yet. And yours was like one of the first ones that came up. And I loved the show. And I, it was almost uncanny because I just kept hearing, I kept, you know, the women, a lot of your guests have been really influential, but I do feel like the women, the women's stories really spoke to me. And during that time, there was a few women who were on your show who had stories exactly like mine. And some of them weren't even as bad. I mean, that was the other thing where I'm going, listening to some of these stories, I'm like, well, oh my God, I'm so much worse. You know, some people think I'm so much better. And I was thinking I'm worse than these people. Like why, you know, and then this is the weirdest thing. Like I was getting jealous. Like I was jealous of people's recovery stories because I kept thinking like, how do they get to go and be this? You know, why do they get to have this and I don't? Or why do they get to feel better and I don't? And I mean, duh, it's like, it was such like the missing link. I didn't want to see <laughs> Like they... <laughs> You know, but I was, I remember this is, you're going to laugh the night before my last drink. So it would have been February 17th, 2015. I was at a bar talking about your show and I (laughs) was telling a group of people, one, how good it was and that I really liked it. And I'm going like, Oh, you like, you know, you like good stories. Like you have to hear these stories. And then with like this sort of envy, I was like, you know, I just don't understand why, like, you know, why is it, why do you have to get sober to be better? And, you know, it was such a, it was just denial, you know, just sitting there talking and feeling like you're like, really, it was like, I knew your show had spoken to me in this way that it was like undeniable at that point. Like I knew how much it had affected me. So that morning I wrote you, that was the day that I wrote you because I just didn't know who else to write. I, I had been listening to your voice for weeks. I had probably, I mean, I consumed, I think at that point, as many episodes that were out. And um, I remember writing you that letter and I was so, it wasn't scared that you would read it. I was actually scared you wouldn't respond because I just thought, I don't know what I'm going to do if I put this out there and like nothing comes back. And And I don't know if you remember the email, but I was also telling you how scared I was to tell my husband that I didn't want to tell him that I had a problem. And, um, God is like, it makes me cry because I never, like, it meant so much to me that you wrote back because at the moment I just felt like I didn't have anybody, you know? And I'll never forget. You were like, we're all like garden variety, alcoholics go to a meeting. And it was so, I mean, you said a lot more than that, but that was the part that was like, okay. Like, I can do this, you know, like if that is what I have to accept to get better, I can accept that. And, um, fortunately I did have a friend in the program here who took me that, that Friday, I think. And he, he took me to meetings, I think every Friday for like six months. And, um, I did, you know, so that's basically how I got into the program was, but it was actually through you because I, um, you know, I don't think I would have gone if it was any other way. I mean, I had already trusted you. I think that was the thing. I had trusted the message. I trusted the stories. I had already connected so much that it was like, and don't get me wrong. I mean, getting into that first meeting was terrifying. I was shaking. I was crying. I thought I couldn't, you know, I knew I just couldn't talk. I didn't want anyone to, to talk to me or look at me, but, but there was such a relief, you know, for me, it was like, okay, like I'm going to, like, I'm going to do this. You know, I just, at that moment, it was like, it was partly for my daughter, but I would even say more. It was like, it was the end for me. I was done. I was so sick of feeling, um, well, everyone says the same thing. You know, I was, I was sick and tired, of feeling sick and tired, but I was also tired of the denial. You know, I was so sick of thinking there was going to be another way out. And, you know, you can tell from my story, like I had looked for every way out. I mean, honestly, my last shot was becoming a mother. That was really kind of the last thing for me that I thought would save me. It did not, you know? And so I did, I started the program two years ago and I really haven't looked back. I mean, it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's been the only thing I've ever found that was able to really change me in like a fundamental way. And I love the fact that in the program, well, in any recovery program, I think you just learn so much about the things you didn't want to see. You know, there's so many things about my alcoholism that I would have never related to alcoholism. And um, I always joke around that I'm like the queen of geographics because... I never knew that was a thing. I thought that was like me being really special <laughs> and unique and, oh, I just like to move around and I travel, you know, and I thought that was like a positive thing. And it can be, you know, and I have a lot of ideas about this, but, and I think travel can be um, really life enhancing and pleasurable, but it can also be, for me, it became a form of addiction, a form of escape and a way of running away from anything that i felt like i wanted to leave behind and there was always a lot so yeah i mean i know i spent a lot more time talking about my story than my recovery but i feel like now it's just part of um it's part of who i am now it's something that i feel it was just so necessary to go through and you know i could spend another hour talking about the spirituality side of it but um you know, in a deeper way, I do think that's what was missing. You know, I think that was the part that couldn't get me, it kind of made me resistant to AA. But in the end, it's the thing that keeps me hooked is like, I have such a deep spiritual life now that I would have never um, been able to embrace. And that's not the spirituality in the sense that, you know, my parents had taught me. It's like a very new, um, it's it's very personal to me, you know. It's like a my own higher power. You know, even some of the phrasing in AA kind of irks me because I feel like it it's still trying to put labels on things. But I but I think it's fine. It's like how we need to talk about it. But for me, you know, that was always there. You know, that was there before AA. That was the me, you know, crying out in the night like I need help. You know, that was a spiritual call. That was not. Called Omar, you know, know, it was like, I was always longing for that. So for me to find that, I mean, I just feel so lucky at this point. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges I've had in, uh, recovery is kind of how to introduce my, my choice to other people in my life, you know, and I know that was something you and I talked about was, um, You know, my husband, who is still drinking, and we've had to negotiate that, you know, I feel like that's been a hurdle for us. But I think what you said in your email, which was like, focus on yourself. And that has been my mantra. And there's been times where, you know, you don't know if it's going to work. You don't know if, you know, your recovery is going to lead you in a different direction or how people are going to accept it maybe they won't. And you even said that, you know, it was like, maybe um, he won't accept it, but you still have to do it. You know, you can't not go through it because of fear that people aren't going to accept you or not understand you. And for the most part, I've been met with a lot of support, but there's also times where I feel really alone. You know, there's times where I know I'm going through this alone, but for the other people who are doing it too
2: wow 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 i just i want i want to show you something right i have one two three four four sheets of notes from our session and uh it is amazing yeah you know now you know as a coach right when i you know, now when I listen to somebody's story, I'm just breaking you down the whole time. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I recognize the rabbit hole that you're in. And, and what I've noticed is that the people that tend to gravitate towards me as a coach are people much like yourselves who are super brilliant, high achievers, right? And on the surface are able to accomplish whatever they put their mind to. Right. And there is this one element that they just cannot seem to get control over. So even among you know all the notes that, that I've taken, right, in many cases what the takeaway is on this is, is as I call it, it's that one drink towards authenticity. Okay. Um and what I mean by that is is that you know, we were all born to do something. Right? We were all born like one of the things that I wrote here you know, halfway through our conversation was a uh, book writer and screenwriter, right? Um, you have this ability to tell a story, you have the ability to write, you have a, an ability to communicate on a very high level, right? And, and in a very detailed way, obviously, that, that represents, you know, being, being a writer of some sort, so either a screenplay or a book author, um, and also what kept just screaming at me was Sarah Hepple, a blackout, Sarah Hepple, a blackout, right? I, I interviewed Sarah Hepple. I don't know if you heard that episode.
0: I have a story. I, I love her. And that was when you ask what books to recommend. I mean, I, I read that, I think in the first couple of weeks, I got so, And I loved the interview even better than the book, actually. She's like so great in, in real life. Yeah.
2: She's amazing. She's so down to earth. She's so real right? Like Mm -hmm. she's so real and she's so down to earth, right? That um, I just absolutely, it was one of my favorite interviews, right? Just, Just talking with her. But there is that sense of, right, disconnect from the world because I can't seem to connect with it, right? But there is that window in that first drink where the ease and comfort comes in. Okay, So you have that moment of where I'm still alert, I'm still awake. If I'm if, right in the middle of my first drink, I know I'm having my first drink. Everything after that is a crapshoot. Everything after that is either a blackout or a train wreck or a, a wake-up next to some weird guy or or I woke up in jail or whatever. But there is that first drink where there is that moment of I am me and I'm able to be the most authentic and truest version of myself in this moment. And it's five minutes, is it 10 minutes? But there is that moment, and every time I plan my relapse, I am looking for that five to 10-minute window of authenticity where I can just be me. And the question is always like, who am I? Who am I and what do I want? And when you're so brilliant, when you're so smart, then there's, there, it's, it's an overload of information. And you're also bombarded with the shoulds, with this education, with this level of intelligence. I should be this. I should be that. I should go in this direction. I should be doing this thing. On top of the things that people, my parents, my mom, my dad, my teachers, there's all these expectations that we have around the world. The smarter you are, the more suggestions you're going to get. Wow, straight A students. You could be this. You could be that. You could go this route. Right, And so you're constantly bombarded with and stripped away from your truest version of yourself because now you have all this input from other people. And I start I start to walk away from who I'm supposed to be and I start walking towards what people expect me to be. And so what, the alcohol allows me to fucking blow all that up, man. I can self-sabotage and start over whenever I want to know exactly how to do it. Yeah. Whenever I'm in a situation where... Where I find that I have disconnected from my truest version of myself. I can easily do a reboot. The alcohol is the quickest way to do it. And I can just Nagasaki my life, right? And then I have to start over. And then what do I get? I get compassion. I get love. I get support from the people around me. Or right?
0: just attention. You know, or, just, or,
2: I get attention. So, so, you know, as I'm listening to your story right as as I I'm watching you unfold naturally your story and even all the traveling right so what I would do is we would you know like we would go back into your childhood and we would find out where you took the wrong turn that's it right we took a wrong turn when we were children somewhere um and we we started on a path right that ended us up where we're at now and though we are so much further along than we were Right? When we start feeling irritable, restless and discontent, when we start feeling as though I'm overwhelmed as a parent, I'm overwhelmed as a wife, I'm overwhelmed in my relationship, I'm overwhelmed this, then we have to try and reconnect with that authentic version of ourselves before we Nagasaki our life again, before we yeah. jump back into the bottle. We don't take the time to ask ourselves the really important questions because we really don't know what they are. I just know I'm uncomfortable. I know I'm unhappy. So what's the quickest way for me to get out of this? Boom, the alcohol comes in, you know? Um, And so the message is is very, very powerful and it's very, very clear. Marriage isn't going to do it. My children aren't going to do it. A true desire isn't going to do it. I can't think my way. And when I'm super smart, I'm constantly trying to think my way out of it. You know, in a lot of ways, what I do is you need to stop thinking. Okay, you need to stop thinking and you need to start doing. And what you did was exactly that. I'm just going to do. You started going to meetings and you started connecting with the fellowship and you stopped questioning it and fighting it. And it's like, I'm just going to do it. And eventually what happens is those emotions, those feelings, those accomplishments that we get in that window of recovery, you know, they start to take over. And so the self-esteem that we build from that allows us to pick up some momentum and keep moving forward in our recovery. That's it. It's as simple as that. I've simply just acted my way into better thinking. It's the simplest way to to to. So now, so now that I'm sober, now that I'm coming up on two years, now that I've got a podcast, you know that that also, you know, in, in, in some of the episodes you're focusing on recovery, you've got a blog that you're running, writing. Okay, this is all action towards. Action towards recovery, actions towards sobriety, which is, yes, you are going in the right direction. Um, but it would behoove me to, to 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 make it very clear that you are also a seeker. You are a seeker. You are someone in search of. And if you get lost or if you get stuck, right, then you you will harm yourself. You will you will self-sabotage, right? if if, if, if I'm not continuing, To seek what my true purpose is on this earth,
0: I wanted. I didn't. I didn't mention this, but it was also a big part of my recovery. Was you know, and and as you talk about action and getting out of thinking, um, I started listening to Tara Brock uh, like really early in my recovery. And I know you've had other guests who have mentioned her, but I mean, I I really can't recommend her podcast strongly enough because I think. One, you like, I learned a lot of meditation techniques through through her. But I also, you know, there would just be mornings, especially with a newborn. You know, it's like I. There was times where there was nothing else I could do but listen to podcasts. (laughs) That's why. I mean, also being in a foreign country, I think it kind of fed my need for, um, you know, just connection, like listening to people, hearing people talk in English, and so I mean, there's times where I listen to ten hours a day, no joke. But anyway, her podcast and her lectures are just so grounding and so there's other actions that i take including meetings and a big part of that is podcasts for me and i don't really say it lightly i mean it, they kind of saved my life i mean that's how i found your show and there and since then there's just been so many other people that i've been able to connect with like not just in recovery but also Um, yeah, in, in Buddhism, you know, meditation, like just, there's all, you know, whatever you're looking for, you really can find it and you can be passive for a while. You know, you can really be a passive listener and take it in and learn what you need to learn, but then you can start giving back. And, and that's what I feel like I've learned so much from people, people's experiences and also their efforts to uncover realities, uncover their own truth and, And the people that are willing to give that back. I mean, I just i am so grateful for all the people who have been on your show because they didn't have to do that, you know? And I know there's the anonymity factor, but the truth is I wouldn't get, I wouldn't be sober if people hadn't have broken their anonymity. And that's why I feel like I'm willing to also do that because I think it's important and it's important that it's timely, you know, and it's important that, um, you know, even as people are listening, whenever you launch this in a couple months, it's like, they this is happening in real time, you know, for people. And that's why po- uh, podcasts for me are so powerful. And I, and that's, you know, why I started my own too, is like, I just love the way they connect people through voice, especially.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, taking action is the most important thing you can do, right? You're never going to wait. your you're never going to think your way out of this ever. You're never going to you're never going to come up with the strategy, right, to get out of this mess until you take action. You have to take action. You have to move in that direction. You have to seek help from people who have done it, you know, that have already done it, that have already laid the groundwork down, right? And and ultimately at some point, right? like Kate's doing, is give back. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten emails from people that said, I hope that someday I'll be able to share my story on your podcast. And Kate is one of those people. Kate is one of those people. If you think about it, this is a two-year journey. This is a two-year journey for Kate as you're listening to this that she reached out to me in one of her deepest, darkest moments, right? Where she needed, you know, she threw a Hail Mary out there hoping that someone would catch the ball, you know, and I was there, right? But again, I I personally believe that that's higher power too. You know, your higher power guides you when you are actively seeking. Again, she's a seeker, you know, and many of us are seekers. When you are seeking the solution, right, with a truest heart, but I'm talking about you're coming from your truest heart, knowing that even though you don't know how to do this, something inside of you does. And I can if I can just connect with that, right, and get into action that eventually I'm gonna meet the right person. So two years ago, she sends me an email, I respond, I hope someday I can, you know, share my story. Here we are two years later. Kate has an amazing story. It's got to be one of the most beautiful stories I've heard. Mainly because of just how beautifully it flows, right? You get a, a wonderful idea of just how bad it was, right? And how, in every single moment, there were so many God moments. In your story, where he was trying to pull you along, he knew you were trying to get out, and he's trying to pull you out, right? And 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 somehow you just can't find your way back in. So you know, so so the takeaways there's just too many, right? There's too many takeaways from this story. But the most important thing is get into action, right? Take that first step towards recovery. Actively seek it. If you are lost and you are listening to this right now, you haven't done shit. All right, then do something. Bombarders, just sit there and listen to podcasts all day long if you can't do anything else. Join the Share Facebook Recovery Network and just stock it all day long. Just read the post and watch what other people are doing. You don't have to write anything, but you can sit there and just read how other people are dealing with early recovery, how they're dealing with the current recovery, and how people are responding, right? And, and, and this is where it begins, and we have this opportunity because now that we're online, and now that we, are, we have the opportunity to get recovery from the privacy of our own home completely anonymous with nobody watching, there is just an unlimited resource of recovery information and products and books and Audible, books and Kindle, uh, all kinds of Facebook groups, all kinds of podcasts. If, if you can't connect with a resource, it's because you don't want to. It's as simple as that. Ooh, I was heavy Kate I was I was I love your story I, I am just I'm pumped
0: well, listen, I, I never know if I'm rambling but
2: no there was zero rambling just so you know there was zero rambling all right so we're going to start to close up here um, and you know how I like to do it I like to close up for the newcomer All right. So I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery and I want you to respond with insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Kate, are you ready? I am ready. All right. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery?
0: Well, since I had different introductions to it, I mean, I think they were all the same. I, I wanted to, I didn't want to I didn't want to admit my weakness. That was the hardest part. I just felt like admitting alcoholism was a defeat. And now I realize how wrong I was in that thinking. Um, You know, not only did I want to beat it and control it and not admit there's something wrong with me because that's my biggest fear that something's wrong with me. And being called an alcoholic felt like just feeding that fear. um, It was just the opposite, you know? (laughs) That's what I learned was that admitting alcoholism is like taking this small step onto a curb, you know, to get out of the street. It's like the smallest step you have to take to get in on the sidewalk, you know, but for it took me so long to do it. That's the step, you know, for me, that was what was holding me back. I just couldn't admit there was something wrong with me.
2: That's a beautiful analogy. I love that, right? Like it's just the smallest. I just have to step on the curb to get off the street. It's this smallest step and I just, I can't figure out how to do it. That is, I love it. It's beautiful. All right. So number two, um, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time and developed the hope that you could recover?
0: I think there's been a lot of those for me. I mean, just, you know, now there's moments. I mean, I've had a lot of hard times in my recovery too. Like my daughter got diagnosed with a rare uh, brain condition um, called Chiari malformation. It happened when about six months ago. And the thing is like, while it probably remains one of the hardest things I've ever gone through and I'm still kind of going through. um, I just know, that I can handle it, you know, and that happens for me almost every day where I feel stress or I feel overwhelmed or I just, I don't know, like feel helpless, but then I I come back to something that's so much deeper and more pure for me. And I, I feel like I can find that, you know, on a walk or whatever, but it's like, I know how to find peace now. And actually I know what peace feels like. And I never had that before. So I don't know if that happened once <laughs> for the first time. And I can't say I remember like a single moment, but I know that these little kinds of spiritual awakenings, a sense of, of peace and serenity, like started happening for me pretty early on. And that's what I'm holding on to, is that feeling.
2: Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Um, so before we continue... If our listeners want to reach out to you, if they want to listen to your podcast, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and get to all your social media and your platforms?
0: Yeah, I have a contact page. If you go to aboutfacepodcast.com, there's a contact page on there. And um, I also um, have a personal email. It's just katelismer at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at kate underscore lismer, L-E-I-S-M-E-R.
2: Perfect. Perfect. I am going to list the website, the Twitter, the email, all on the show notes. So if you guys want to, if you want to reach out to Kate, you can go to the share podcast show notes on her page and get the information. All right. So number three, what, uh, what book would you recommend to our newcomers that you read in early recovery or that you're currently reading?
0: Yeah. Um, the the two that I really loved, and I like I said as a woman, I think they're really relatable. Is uh, Sarah Heppel's book Blackout? I mean, that just gives you like the nitty gritty of what it's like to be, I think, a drunk woman like, <laughs> in that age of her. You know, and also I just had I felt like uh, she was such a kindred spirit. Just the the lifestyle, you know, and the and I don't know attention whoring and things. I mean, I was exactly like this, so. I really related to her and I loved what she said on your podcast too about storytelling because I could really relate to that where it's like that the stories themselves have cachet. I mean, I still feel like mind you, I still feel like I'm I'm like living off these old stories, but yeah, I mean, I, I really like that. And I also liked um, her recommendation, which I read in early recovery, which is Caroline Knapp's book, um, drinking a love story. Um, and then through my recovery, I've read most of Tara Brock's books, which are more, um, I think, I mean, anyone could really benefit from, from her, from her literature, but I, um, I read those. And then also for anyone who has a partner who's drinking, I'm not in Al-Anon, but I, but I know the, like the literature and I, I really liked uh, codependent no more by Melanie Beatty. And I'll pick that up from time to time. You know, if I feel, um, Helpless, you know, in in some in in that kind of context, you know, I, I feel like that's a really good reference piece.
2: Beautiful, and and yes, I absolutely the story. Play, you, you get social currency, right? Oh, Where right. you have this that have that social currency. I used to tell every number of stories. You know, it was always like, as I'm drinking, I'm telling right. these rock bottom stories. You know, and in spectacular fashion, it's, 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 it's priceless, you know, embarrassing, but priceless. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what is the best suggestion you have ever received?
0: You know, I, I actually love, like when I first started AA, I hated the slogans. I really hated them, but I can't tell you how useful they are to me. I think one day at a time, I mean, God, what a, you know, I just love this idea that like, that the universe is set up in a way for us to have like exactly how much time that we can handle, you know, that like there is this darkening and this light, and that actually time and the moon, like everything is set up for us, you know, it's set up for us to manage this particular piece of time. And that means so much to me now because I just never saw things that way. I just thought I'm going to take, I would, I used to call it like the three day cycle where I would. Have a binge, and then the next day I'd, I'd be like, lay low, hangover. And then the third day I'd try to like make up for everything, you know, for three days straight. And so for me, like, not only when I would come out of those three days, then I would make plans for like the next 10 years and think I was gonna accomplish those goals in that day sometimes I think I would have like, you know I could get so much done and then but of course then I would need the relief of, of alcohol on that fourth day. So anyway, I think one day at a time is just so crucial especially in early recovery you know I had a newcomer call me a few weeks ago and I don't need to get in the details of her story but the crux of it was like, How am I going to handle this situation that hasn't happened yet, that might happen in five years, that actually this what happened today has nothing to do with, you know? And I'm going like, it really, you know, I love working with newcomers in that way because you learn so much about you remember what you were like, you know, because things just sound, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like this is not a thing yet. But when you're in that, you don't see that, you know. And I was exactly the same way, you know, having fears and um you know, once you go through the program, you just learn so many of these coping mechanisms, but they, they, they can be really powerful if you apply them, you know, regularly because then they just start becoming how you live. And that's what has been a gift to me is learning like, um, yeah, I mean, that was a big one. I'm trying to think, I'll just say that. Yeah. One day at no, a time.
2: But here's the thing that it's a different spin on one day at a time right like i like the way you phrase that in the sense of actually breaking it down and looking what that means what is one day at a time right one day at a time and the universe has has, has perfectly put a system in place so that that day can end so no matter how bad it gets right there's going to be a brand new day tomorrow and just almost phrasing that to a newcomer could make all the difference in the world. And just, just kind of like that epiphany moment that, you know, everything comes to an end. The good, the bad, you know, whatever. Everything comes to an end and then tomorrow starts a brand new day. So no matter how bad it gets, right, we have no idea what's going to come tomorrow, right? You can have a little bit of hope for the future. And, and I like just phrasing that. It's, it's brand new ways to, to bring the same idea, you know, in a different way in case they're just not grasping it, you know, just for the day, one day at a time, whatever.
0: I hated, I hated that when I first heard it because it just didn't click. It made no sense to me, but yeah.
2: It does now.
0: Yeah, I need it. Uh-huh.
2: Okay, so number five, what is the, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be?
0: Well, I think that everyone, while we are all similar, I do think everyone comes in with a different set of, Resistances, and in my case, I I think it had to do with um, ego and willpower, and like not wanting to admit I was an alcoholic, and and also as like a high functioning alcoholic, I think I'm going to speak to those people and just say that if the word alcoholic is your problem like step on that curb and get out of the street because it is the least of your concerns. I mean, admitting it is honestly the best thing you can do for yourself. And yes, it you know, it's hard to say out loud. I still have a hard time saying it out loud. And you know, sometimes it's still it's hard to introduce to people, you know. I don't and you know, I was thinking about the other day that it's such a funny word if you think about it. It's like calling cancer chemo, right? Because actually alcohol is the cure for how we are feeling, you know, alcohol is the remedy. And if you take it away, you're still sick. You know, it's not about the alcohol and I actually think it's a misnomer, but who cares what you call it? You know, I just think it's, it's a, it's a problem. It's something that there's treatment for. It's something you can get help with. And yes, all of the treatment that i found, you know, in the recovery I found is under the guise of this term, alcoholism, just get over it. You know, (laughs) that is what we're calling it. And I think, you know, it held me back for what, almost 20 years. It held me back from getting help. And I, and that's really, really sad because I don't think, you know, it's, it's partly the stigma, but I think internally, we just don't want to admit that we don't have control over something ironically, alcoholics are the worst at that, right? You know, we want to feel like we have control over everything. So we're going to be the last people to admit that we don't have control.
2: And that is how we are going to close. That is a strong, strong suggestion. Thank you, Kate. Wow. There's been so many wonderful takeaways. I hope that, and it's a very long episode. I love that. You know what I mean? I I find that the The longer my episodes are, the more that we can really dive into so many different aspects of what this disease has done. But I love closing with the idea of like, get over it. You know what I mean? Like, get over the term, right? And at some point, you don't have to even classify yourself as an alcoholic. You classify yourself as a person in long-term recovery, right? It means the same thing, has two different connotations, but at some point, Once you cross over, once you take that step off the curb, right? Once you take that that step and you start to get relief, you realize that recovery is the best thing that could have ever happened to you in your life. So embrace it. Embrace this. Kate, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. I owe you. I owe you big time. So it was amazing. And I love your show. Let's still listen to it every week.
2: Oh, my God. I love the free endorsements. So, <laughs> All right, folks. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say in, here in Costa Rica...